This morning, I would invite you and encourage you to open the Bible and find the next to the last book in that Bible, or open your phone, whatever they uh, and find the book of Jude. Today, we are continuing, and in fact, completing our study that we've had these past five weeks in this uh, series of messages that I call Lessons from the One Chapter Books in the Bible. And we've been looking at, am I not on? How about now? Am I good? Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm not going to start over. Um, but we're looking at the lessons that we learn from the one chapter books in the Bible. There are five books in the Bible that are one chapter long. Very short letters or messages or prophecies. And, uh, but we found that there is a, a richness to them because they tend to get a little bit more to the point and aren't cluttered with a whole lot of other other things, and, and please don't think that I think of the Bible as not being to the point and cluttered with a whole bunch of side issues. But these are direct, and, and they tell us what they want, and they get on to the next subject, because there's just not much time. Until we arrive at the moment we're at today. Okay, I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. We, these five books of the Bible that are one chapter long are Obadiah. Remember, we... We, we looked out the Old Testament, the only, the only book in the Old Testament that's only one chapter long, and it talked about when Jesus would return and establish his, his kingdom, that then justice, true justice, full justice would, would uh, reign on the earth. Then we saw Philemon in the New Testament, the letter written by Paul to this um, slave owner named Philemon, as he returned back to him, his runaway slave Onesimus, and he encouraged Philemon to demonstrate grace to this one who had wronged him. And in fact, he said, if, if what he's done has wronged you in any way where there is a cost involved, put it on my tab. I'll take care of it. Then we saw uh, 2 John. And in 2 John, we saw the letter written by the by the Apostle John, short, the shortest of the books in the, in the Bible. And 2 John was a, a message to the elect lady. And, and he warned or, or he taught her and told her that these preachers, these teachers, these prophets that are coming in and teaching your congregation, receive them. And be hospitable to them and be, be kind to them. To them and take care of them because they are God's gift to you. Then we saw last week, 3 John, where John warns uh, Gaius and others to be careful. There are some folks you don't need to be hospitable toward. There are some you need to be careful about. And when they come along and they're teaching a different gospel than the one that you know, the one that has been taught to you, have nothing to do with them. Send them on their way. But don't provide for them uh, any hospitality or any kind of support. Um, today we're going to arrive at the book of Jude. 
I mentioned a moment ago that Jude tends to be a book that has a lot of information packed into it. And, I, and when we read it, you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. I'm kind of setting this up because I have tried my best to figure out a way to do this, this study of this book in one sermon. It's about six sermons long. There's, a, there's just that much there. Um, so I just want you to know that we're not going to handle every detail. We're not going to get off into the, uh, the, the rabbit runs and, and uh, chase down these rabbits that will pop up as a study because they are illustrations that are used to make a point. We're going to deal with the point, but not necessarily with the illustrations. And that means there's going to be homework for you. You can trace these things down. You can trace these things uh, back and study them for yourself. But our purpose today is just to see them and see how they fit into the letter. But here's the disclaimer that I want to give to you today. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. You'll understand a little bit. Uh, a little bit later, when we get around verse 7, 6, 7, 8, 9, those verses can become cumbersome with historical, biblical information that matters, but are not necessarily something that we need to belabor. Okay, do you get that? I just don't want you to think I'm skipping over stuff because it's tough. Uh, or that I don't know exactly what these things are talking about. Um, I'm just saying that there are a lot of a lot of them that we can just take care of in one sentence, which is what Jude did. He took care of them in one sentence, but the difference was he's writing it to a church 2,000 years ago that would have been familiar with these terminologies. We are not. Okay, so are you in, are you in the book of Jude today? We're going to look at this book of Jude, and I'm going to call it Stop. Falling away. There is a theological word that you're probably familiar with uh, that is called apostasy. Apostasy literally is falling away. Now, an apostate is someone who falls away. Now, that's really all you need to know about apostasy. It is Having come to a place in one's life of, of accepting and receiving the truth and then fall off, fall off the table, fall off the edge. When I was growing up, they called it backsliding. I'm not sure that backsliding is a strong enough term because we all probably, if we'd be honest, we all tend to backslide somewhat. But this is a willful choice of walking away from the truth to accept something else. And Jude's warning is going to be, stop doing that. So we're going to look at, at this 25-verse letter um, from Jude. I think it's important for us. Well, we'll talk about that when we go. I was going to talk about the author. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Look at, uh, at verse 1. And the, the, for, this is the what I'm going to call the introduction. And the introduction is found in verses 1 and 2. And in verse 1, it starts off by saying, 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And I want to stop there. I know that verse 1 goes on. But I just want to stop there because there are a couple things that he said that are important to understanding of this letter. First of all, he, he identifies himself as Jude. That is a Greek, uh, uh, a Greek shortened version of the, of the name Judas. Heard of Judas? There were two disciples in Jesus 12, the group of 12, named Judas. They were Judas Iscariot and Judas not Iscariot, one of the versions said. And we're familiar with Judas Iscariot because he's the one that was uh, uh, that was a prominent member of their group, kept the uh, he was the treasurer, kept the money, paid the bills. Um, uh, but he also was the one who for just a pittance turned Jesus over to be crucified. Uh, turning him over to the temple guards in what Jesus called betrayal. And so uh, uh, nobody likes to... One of the names that you don't hear a great deal anymore of people giving their kids names is Judas. They may use the shortened version Jude. I've heard that several times. But I just want you to see Jude is short for Judas, and Judas is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew... Judah, J-U-D-A-H, all, one's Hebrew and one's Greek, same thing, um, but Judah was one of the, one of the, uh, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons of, of Jacob, uh, he also was an individual, a person, um, and so Judah is a, is prominent within Israel, and, and the name Judas would have been a prominent, very common name. Now it says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. And he was also the brother of James. James there, his reference is to the elder, the leader of the Jerusalem church at probably by this time. Um, and so this is, a, this is a man who has a relative who is prominent in the church, but he's got a relative even more prominent than that. He is the half-brother, um, I, I, I think he is, this is my conclusion, as well as the majority of, of scholars, people that know what they're talking about, uh, that I've read. He is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus, we are told, had sisters, and he had at least four brothers. And they were, if I can do this, there was, there was James, and there was Joseph, and there was Judas, and I'm drawing another, uh, Carl. That's not it. I can't. But uh, this Judas was a half-brother of Jesus. You know what that means? That means he grew up in the same household that Jesus did. He saw Jesus before Jesus was somebody, at, at least in society. They, they would have chased lightning bugs in the backyard. They may have gone down to the fishing hole. They, they played together. They worked together. They were brothers. They saw each other uh, grow up. And Jude doesn't mention that. Don't you find that unusual? Most people would probably, if you're related, 
blood related to Jesus, I think that if you're going to write a letter about him, you'd probably drop a name and put that in there. That he, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus. The younger brother, a servant of the oldest brother. I, now, having grown up in a house with three sisters and an older brother, I was fourth in, in line in that household, and I had to fight for everything I got. I mean, you know, when we had fried chicken, there was never a breast for me. I might, if I would really fight, I could get a leg, maybe. Uh, usually it was the neck or something. No, it wasn't that bad, but I'm just saying that, not that the neck is bad if you like chicken neck. We'll pray for you. Uh, but I'm just saying that it, when you're the younger of the siblings, you, some, you don't grow up wanting to be the servant. Now, sometimes you are the servant by default because the older one pushes you down. The older one may, may make it tough on you. But here, this, this is his identification of himself in the introduction where he willingly calls himself a servant. In fact, the word that's used there is a bondservant. He's a slave. He is not just somebody who's doing the bidding of, uh, of, the, uh, of the one who's his master. He is one who is owned by his master. He no longer has personal rights. Those have transferred to the master. Now he's talking about being a bondservant of Jesus Christ, his half-brother. That while Jesus was on this earth, according to the Gospels, Judas and James and Joseph and Carl, uh, they all did not, uh, they didn't believe in Jesus as being the Messiah, as being the Christ. It wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus that they became believers. Now the resurrection is, is that which sets Jesus Christ apart from anyone who's ever lived. Other people have revived having been declared dead, but no one has been resurrected and still alive. You understand that? And so the brothers and the sisters of Jesus became followers of Jesus and, and saw that their older brother was in fact not just the oldest in the family, but he was the son of God, different from them. And they, like Jude, surrendered their life and their control to Jesus Christ. So Jude is called here the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. That's who writes this, this letter. And then it goes on and it tells us who he's writing it to. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Christ Jesus. He says those who are called. The term that's used for called is the Greek word kaleo and it means to call to yell the church is called the ecclesia the called out ones and so he is he, he is writing this letter to those who are called out out of what out of the world into the body of Christ um, 
and they are loved by God and they are kept for Jesus Christ because one day Jesus is going to come and gather them together. So the letter is being written by the call that doesn't tell us if they are Hebrews or Gentiles, if this is written to the called out ones in this city or that city, or if this is to be understood as the called out ones in general. That's the way that I would tend to put this. Those who are believers who are part of the universal body of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. You know why I prefer that? Because that means the letters to me too. And it has a personal aspect. This is the introduction that, that Paul has in verse 1. And then here he's going he's to send his greetings in verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's the introduction. That's what, what Paul wants to say. His desire is that uh, mercy and peace and love just explodes all over them. That this is the hallmark, the trademark of their lives. And so that, that's, that, sounds, that sounds to me like Jude is getting ready to write a real love letter. A real encouragement letter. That's the introduction that we read. The second thing that I want you to see as we read along beginning in verse 3 is what I'm going to call the change of the purpose of the letter. The change of the purpose. Why he was writing this. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Verse 3. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Now, if you're reading along closely, you'll notice that he says there, he changed his mind as to what he was going to write about. He had a change in purpose for the letter. Uh, he wanted to write about the common salvation or that faith that they all had in common. Do you understand that regardless of what flavor of, of church we attend, those who are true believers and true Christ followers... All became true believers and true Christ followers the exact same way. That is through faith and trust in the work that Jesus Christ completed on the cross. Period. End of statement. It's, now we have built denominations and church flavors as I call them uh, all over the planet because this one prefers this, and this one prefers that. And this one doesn't want you to have pianos in the sanctuary, and this one doesn't want you to sing hymns, and this, this one wants you to only use this version of the Bible. And we get a lot of things that we feel are important. But what Jude is saying is, I want to write to you about that which we have in common. And the most basic common thing we have is our salvation. Now, as you look around or think about looking around the room of people around you, we came to Jesus in different ways. 
so I remember in the church I was at in Tulsa years ago, they had everybody stand who got saved on a Sunday, and everybody who got saved on a Monday, you know, all, all the days of the week. And uh, we, people get, get saved on different days, and they get saved at different kind of places. If they got saved at church, or if they got saved at home, or if they were at a friend's house, or they were watching Billy Graham on the TV, whatever it may be. Uh, it, it, but the simple thing is, no matter when or where or what the circumstances were, we both, we all came to salvation through a mutual faith, a mutual trust in what Jesus Christ did for us. He said, I wanted to write to you about that. That would be a really good thing. I mean, wouldn't you But are they have an election in your world this week. Aren't you going to be glad when all that's gone? I don't know what we're going to do on TV. But wouldn't you just love to have a good word where somebody comes on the TV and says something nice about somebody else? That wasn't a political statement. I'm not picking sides here on this. By the way, Tuesday is election day. If you haven't voted, vote. Okay? It's imperative. It's important that you do that. But I, I just... I can't wait for a good, positive message, a good, positive word. I love it when someone comes up and they say, I want to talk to you, and they got a smile on their face. You know. Uh, so I'll just I'll leave that there. But that, he wanted to give them a common, uh, a discussion of the common salvation they had. But he says, I found it necessary to write to you about something else. And this, by the way, is the theme of this letter. I'm going to put it up there in red so you can see what it is that he says. This is what I, what I felt I needed to write to you about. That you contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you know why it was necessary for him to write a letter to, to appeal to them to contend for the faith? Because people had stopped contending for the faith. That, my friends, by definition is apostasy. It is to fall away from the faith that you, that you once had or the saints once had or the church once had. That, that if you will, that old time religion. How we have kind of watered that and diluted that. And... His writing is to say, I want you to contend for that original faith. Work at it. Contend is an active word. It's, a, it's not a sit around and wait until it comes on you. Wait until the preacher gets it so that he can tell you. Contend yourself for that faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now that's the change. The change in the purposes from this from this uh, uh, desire to write a, a good, positive letter about, about how great it is to be Christ followers and believers in him, to where he's, he's had to say to them, please, please, please work hard at your faith life. Contend for it. See how important it is. That's the change of the purpose. Now, why did he change? That's my next point. The purpose of the change. The reason why 
He changed the purpose of the letter. And we find it in verse 4. Look, look what he writes in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Into, into what? Into the church. Into the local church. Into the church universal. And they have watered down what, uh, what faith ought to be. He says, they crept in unnoticed. Long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are those, in other words, now, now I, I'll tell you, starting at verse 4 is when it's going to start getting deeper and more difficult to understand. Let me dumb it down for you. And, and I, that's something I'm good at. I can handle it when it's dumbed down. What he's saying is that I, you need to contend for the faith because all around you there are people who are going to try to lead you astray, who are going to teach you wrong truths. And they're going to take you away from the grace of God and lead you towards sensuality, what you think, what you hope, what you want, and who will deny Jesus as Master and Lord. Now remember verse 1? Jude said, I am a servant, a bond slave of Jesus. He is my master and my Lord. But I'm seeing others who just like me surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but now are no longer living it. Because somebody came along and talked them out of some aspect of their faith, of their spiritual maturity. May, now listen, sometimes people are, are persuasive enough to lead people astray by the things that they say and teach or write. Other times, people get led astray by people because of the way that the other people live. They turn you off. Well, you, you know what I'm, what I'm digging at? That sometimes somebody um, who says, I'm a Christian, but they're... They're not very nice, or they're not very moral, or they're not very pure. And you begin to say something like, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want any part of that. He says that the purpose for this change, the reason why he changed is because people have come in here and are leading people astray by the bucket, by the bucket pool. And it's having an, an effect on the church. Let me, let me step out of this sermon long enough to let you do a little thinking. As you look around the church today, the church that's around you, the church that you're a part of, the church that you read about, experience, other believers, whatever, whatever your terminology is, do you see people being more and more devoted in the following of Jesus Christ or less and less? Now, I understand that we are in a period where numbers and attendance are pretty hard indicators of, of a person's uh, uh, devotion and commitment as far as church attendance goes. But let's back up. If, we, if I was doing this a year ago, 
I could talk about the fact that on any given Sunday, three out of four at least, and probably four out of five, church Southern Baptist church members would not be in church. Most of them would not have been in church all year long except maybe Easter. Now, when I was a kid growing up, that wasn't the way it was. <laughs> we were real committed. We had probably two out of three that wouldn't be there. Just, my, my personal observation is that persons who are believers in Jesus Christ today are less devoted to following him than they were a year ago, two years ago. three. Now, that's not true of everyone. But as a general as a general observation. And, and he, says that, he says, that's why it was necessary for me to write to you because I'm seeing that happen to you in your life. Now, now he's going to introduce to us apostasy, the study of this or the discussion about falling away. And he's going to start off by talking about apostasy in the past. Now, this is where we're just going to have to put the hammer down and just go through it. All right. I'm not going to take the time that, to get every nuance of this, but I'm just going to mention these to you. From verses 5 to 7, here's what he writes. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling... <clears throat> he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Whew. That's a long sentence. There's a lot there. And we could easily spend a sermon kind of developing all those things. But you know what he's saying? Take a look in the rearview mirror and see how God has dealt with apostates before. Remember when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt to the, to the promised land and along the way they said, eh, I'm a little bit afraid. Let's go back. What was, God didn't say, oh, nice trial. We'll just, We'll work this out. We'll work through this. No, an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness. Then he talks about the apparent, what I believe apparently is the fall of, of Lucifer, of the devil, of Satan, uh, and his, those angels who, who were created for the same purpose the other angels were, but they, they chose to leave their estate their condition, their position with God, because they didn't want God to be in charge, they wanted Lucifer to be in charge. And a third of the angels that God had created were swept out of, a, uh, out of heaven because of their resistance, because of their rebellion. These are God's angels. They were created before God's people were. And, and, and as much as I think God loves the angels, he judged those who rebelled and resisted and who fell away from their position. 
Then there is Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about that over in the book of Genesis. How an entire region, an entire area of people had gotten perverted in their lifestyles. And God sent fire and brimstone down and so utterly destroyed them. That um, we have to kind of suppose where all of these places really were on the map. The point is that these are people that God created. God loves the world. God loved the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they fell away and God judged them. And God is that way. That's, that's what he wants us to know. There has been times of apostasy in the past. And verses 8 through 16 discuss the times of apostasy in the present. And when I say in the present, the present when, Ju when Jude's writing. We're just going to have to read through this one quickly. Uh, and and we'll, we'll see how, how, uh, how God had, was, had worked in their, in their situation. When I say in the, in the present, these were things that they were familiar with. I mean, this was a part of their, of their study, of their devotional life. These, these times when God judged apostates. He says in verse, verse 8, In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but, the, but said, The Lord rebuke you. We can only imagine that this refers back to when, when Moses died on the edge of the wilderness and God buried him. That, that's what it tells us in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, but there was, a, um, there was an extra biblical book that kind of puts a little bit more meat into the story they would have been familiar with. It's not in your Bible. It's not in your Catholic Bible at home. But there are other books that were written that were that were used by the church, where it says that that uh, uh, the archangel Michael said to the devil when he came to lay hold of, of Moses' body, he said, "The Lord rebuke you." He didn't he didn't pull rank. He didn't say, "I'm the highest of the arch of the angels." You should know that, Lucifer, because you used to be one of us. You ought to know the pecking order. I've got high standing. He didn't take his position. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10. Though these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. They have walked in the way of Cain. Either his carelessness or his arrogance or his pride, whatever it might be. Cain is also, Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve, and he's born after the fall, so he has this sin nature. But apparently, you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Both of them offered a sacrifice, which would suggest to me that, that God told them, you got to offer sacrifice. They both knew to do it, but Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice, and Cain didn't. Now, this is what, we could spend two hours discussing exactly what that means. 
But what it was, what it comes down to, it was Cain offered what he pridefully wanted to offer, and that wasn't what God told him to do. And so um, he says, these people have done the same thing. They are walking in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of, of gain to Balaam's there. Remember, Balaam was hired to curse Israel as they were in that journey across to the promised land. And he tried to curse them, but only blessings came out. Um, here in this case, he says, um, Balaam was hired and was willing to curse the people of God, but God intervened, God interfered. Now, we could, it means a whole lot more than that. We don't have time. Or they perished in Korah's rebellion. Remember when Korah, when, the, when Moses had the children of Israel in the wilderness, and Korah said about Moses and Aaron, who died and made you boss? We want to share this pie. We want some of the action. We want to be in charge. And remember what happened? The ground split wide open and they all fell down in. The ground closed. And that was the end of them. That's a pretty good way to squelch some griping and complaining, don't you think? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll go on. Uh, verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. The church having those occasions when they gathered and they shared a meal together. And these people were there with them. They were like shepherds feeding themselves. Like waterless clouds swept along by the wind. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead and uprooted. They're like wild waves of the sea. Casting up foam of their own shame. Stirring up quite a mist. Stirring up the water. But they're only doing it for their own pride. And he says, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied. Saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones. <clears throat> to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers. Malcontents. Following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. I think that Jude put those verses in there. To show that he had not yet completed the course about winning friends and influencing people. <laughs> that, that's pretty straightforward, pretty straight, direct to the point uh, uh, about the people that are around and they're messing everything up. They're constant complaining and groaning and moaning. <coughs> Leads and they're constant boasting. They want to they get... They want to get the following of the people, but they don't want to do what it takes to get the following of the people. Do you see what he's saying? This is what is present. This kind of falling away is present in the body. Now, all of that 
was introduction. Because now I want to get to the essence of the letter. This is what it's about. We're going to have to, we're, we're nearly out of time, so we're going to go quickly with this. But I want you to see his exhortation, his encouragement to those who are faithful. This is what you should do in light of the fact that we come from a church that has a history of falling away. We have those within the body of Christ that right now are leading people astray and are, are bad marks for the rest of, of those who are being faithful. Here's what he says, has to say to those who are doing what they should do. The exhortation to the faithful. Verse 17 says, you must, but you, you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you were taught? From those who were the disciples that were sent out to take this kingdom building um, and take it to all the worlds now that Jesus had ascended uh, into heaven. <coughs> Just remember what they said? They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their ungodly passion. If there were scoffers, if that was the last times, we are definitely in the last times now. We're 2,000 years into the last time. And it, and he says, in these times, there are going to be scoffers, those who follow their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's a contrast and a comparison. Of the way the faithful are to live. As opposed to the apostates. Who have fallen away. And are leading others to fall away. So what he, what he warns about with this group, he encourages this group to be faithful in doing. Now, uh, I need you, uh, Nate, if you will, to jump on down to, uh, to slide, uh, well, to the top of page nine. Okay, do you see it? Stop falling away. This is the one right after conclusion. I'm going to skip over to get down here to this, get the application that has to go along with what we've just read. Here's what, I, what I've concluded. Um, <clears throat> Jude is, says to, his, to these faithful followers, stop falling away, and here's the first point that I think he says, beware of false teachers in the church. When I said beware, the reason why I use the word beware is because I want you, I, I really combine two words there. I want you to be aware and then beware of them. Be aware that there are false teachers that have crept into the church. 
Okay, they're, they're, they're there. Just because someone has a program on Christian television does not mean they are not false teachers. Just because someone is able to have a book or a series of books printed, published, and sold in Christian bookstores does not mean they are Christian messages. We need to be aware. We need to be on our toes because some of these people make their Christianity about you rather than about Jesus. If you just believe in yourself, if you just know God's wanting to make the very best you possible, it's all about you, please understand that's false teaching. The Holy Spirit isn't here to build me and you up. By building up, I mean to glamorize us in some way. But the Holy Spirit is, is wanting to raise up Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is elevated to his worthy position in our lives, our lives will produce growth. So we have to be, beware of false teachers in the church. The second thing I think Jude wrote to, uh, wrote to, the, to these folks was that you should grow in your faith and in prayer. Grow in your faith and prayer. Back in 1973-72, I was in the bedroom of my house. It was a Tuesday, Tuesday night, and I had just graduated. I was getting ready to graduate high school. So you can do the math and you can figure out, I'll just save you some time, I'm an old man. Okay? I picked up the Bible that my dad had given to me. I don't know, I was 12 or 13, and he had written a plan of salvation in it. I was at church every, every Sunday. Every time the church opened, I was in our youth group, you know, all these things. But I was lost as a skunk. Okay, I wasn't doing, I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't doing bad stuff, but I had never given my life to Jesus. And in the bedroom of my house, I prayed, I knelt beside my own bed, and I prayed, and I gave my life to Jesus. I am proud to say to you that I haven't grown a bit since then. Now, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, and I'm being facetious, because there are some folks that that is the testimony of their lives. When I became a believer, I was saved, and I'm going to sit here until Jesus comes back. I'm not going to be moved. Well, I think Jude's saying, guys, we need to be growing. We need to find out and learn new things about Jesus. Not new novelty ideas, but to learn how real he really is. And, and to see, his, see our faith in him come alive in different ways and in different circumstances. We need to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our prayer life. A lot of Christians I know don't like prayer. It's hard to do. Find themselves falling asleep. Yeah, and, and I understand that. And, uh, but I, I think, in fact, what we've tried to do now is we said, if I'm going to have to pray anyway, I think I'll just do it when I'm driving my car in traffic. And that's what a lot of people's prayer, and that, that enhances a lot of other people around you, their prayer life, as you're driving down the street with your eyes closed. You know? 
What I'm saying is we've got to learn how to pray. I was at the Missouri Baptist Convention this week, and one of the one of the officers stood up to introduce that that on Tuesday morning they were going to have a prayer meeting. He said, I don't know how it is around your church, but around my church when I announce a prayer meeting, the room clears. Unfortunately, that's true. We, do, we have to learn to grow in our faith and in our prayers. Let me give you a third one quickly. We have to demonstrate patience with other believers. I mean, did you notice what he said? He said, he said that, that when you come across those that are having doubts, don't, don't become... Um, don't become somebody who's mean to them. Have mercy on those who are doubting, who are struggling in their faith life. Then he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. He's talking about other believers there who are undergoing some, uh, some issues in their life that is going to be dangerous to them unless someone comes along and shakes them by the shoulders and says, straighten up. We're pretty good at that with our teenage kids. We're not always that good with each other. To me, that's one of the values, one of the greatest values of the local Bible study group, whether it's a Sunday school class or a small group, is that we can say to each other, you know, that's not right. You need to be going a different direction. You're thinking wrong there. That's, that's not truth. And he's, so we have, but, but understand that you have to demonstrate patience with them as people learn to understand uh, what the truth is. Going on, stay close to God. Stay close to God. As you go through this life, there are going to be a lot of things that will try to divert you away from that. Sometimes in order to Stay close to God. You've got to fight for that space, don't you? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, I don't know about you, but sometimes my week can get so full. My life, my day can get so full that I just, and usually the stuff that it's filled with really isn't that important. When they have, here, I don't know, it was a couple, three, four weeks ago, they had uh, on the anniversary I think it was the 60th anniversary or whatever of the Andy Griffith show. They had a marathon. Three straight days of Andy Griffith. How are you supposed to have a prayer life then? How are you going to grow in your faith when they're going to have this kind of stuff around? But that's the way we are. We fill ourselves with a lot of stuff and we... we we have to learn to fight for our space and our time with God. Now, not, you don't have to fight God for it. We have to fight our world for it. Because we, our jobs will keep us busy. Our families will keep us busy. Um, our, our lifestyles will keep us busy. Saving the world will keep us busy. But we have to stay close to God. We'll never be able to make an impact as long as, and we'll never be able to ward off those who seek to cause us to fall away until we say, 
this is going to be first in my life. This is what I'm going to live for. This is who I'm going to serve. This is what I'm going to be about. When we do that, then we can stay close to God. I think that Jude um, had a lot to say that would have been very practical in today's world. And I, I just want to go back and read to you the last verse. You don't need to put them up on the screen, um, Nate. Uh, but I want to read to you the two verses that we skipped, verse 24 and 25, because to me, they are among the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. And I'll say this in closing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Pray with me, will you? Father, today as we have hurried through this letter, we have seen there's so much there. And one of the reasons why there's so much there, Father, is because it is so appropriate for our lives today. There's so much like it in our lives. So, Lord, we, we want to be those who don't fall away, who are, who are faithful and true all the way through to the very end. The Lord teaches us how to do that. In these next few minutes as we have this time of just reflecting on what we've talked about, what we've heard, I pray that this would be a time, Father, where we would say, I, God, I've been falling away. I've been wandering away, and I want now to return to you. I want my commitment, my life to be about you. I want to be, uh, I just want to be one who makes the choice now to follow you. So, Father, as we sing, I pray, Lord, that you will just speak to our hearts with what we should do. As we confess to you our need for you. And, Father, I just pray that you'll come alive in our song as we make these commitments to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.